Hi, this is co-host Patrick Baird. I'd like to tell you about my new military science fiction novel, The Nowhere Navy. Decorated officer Frank Ortega reaches his final duty station. An aging Navy Corvette, the ISS Persistent, stationed in a solar system on the furthest edge of colonized space. Located light years from the war front against the mysterious enhancers, the Persistent is crewed by a motley collection of fleet rejects and raw recruits. Life aboard the ship remains slack and unmilitary until they receive a shocking signal. Most of the rest of the fleet was destroyed in a major battle. The Persistent is left alone to guard its solar system against the inevitable invasion they have no chance of stopping. The Nowhere Navy is available on Amazon.com in both Kindle and paperback formats. Thank you. Stop the presses. Pull out the front page. Stand by for a replay. Yeah, it's those two guys from Milwaukee. Oh, those two guys from Milwaukee. Here we go again. It's those two guys from Milwaukee. Welcome to Unknown Orbits, the podcast in which two writers discuss everything science fiction from Gernsbach to Roddenberry. Welcome to episode 32 of Unknown Orbits of Missing Persons by Jack Finney. I'm Patrick Baird. I'm Steve Reitze. Today's episode is from a writer that I'm particularly fond of, Jack Finney. It is what I would classify as soft science fiction. Jack Finney was kind of a acolyte to some degree of Ray Bradbury. He was very much in that same vein. We've already talked about Richard Matheson recently. I think all three of those writers could be grouped together in a soft science fiction category. And this story is very much in that vein. We start out, we have a protagonist who's a burnt out middle-aged man who hears of a company called Acme Travel Agency, which offers an exotic trip to an exotic place that is unmatched by any other travel destination. So he finds the Acme Travel Agency, and of course it's as typical in many kinds of stories like this. It's sort of a small, rundown place in a rundown area, and he talks to the proprietor who tells him that they offer one-way trips to the planet of Verna which is a peaceful paradise planet. And the proprietor goes on to say that many famous missing people actually wound up taking this trip. That's why they were never heard from again and went off to this planet never to return. He tells them, if you want to go, you have to go right now. And the fare is whatever money you have in your wallet or your pocket. And you only have one chance. He agrees. It sounds intriguing. It sounds like just what he needs. So he empties his pockets in his wallet. He's placed on a bus, and the bus takes him and a number of other people way out, out into the country to some remote area. They pull up in front of an old dilapidated barn. Bus driver directs everyone to get off the bus and go sit in the barn and wait, and their transport will arrive shortly. So he goes in there with all the other people. They're sitting on benches inside of the barn, and they wait, and they wait. Nobody really says anything. Everybody's anticipating this trip to take place. And after a while, the protagonist feels that the whole thing is a con game, that he's being ripped off, and he gets upset, and he gets up, and he walks out, and he leaves the barn. And just as he steps outside the barn, there's a bright flash of light. 
He turns around and he gets just a momentary glimpse of an incredibly beautiful paradise planet. And then the light goes out and he's left alone out there in the country with an empty barn. The end of the story is he's telling this to someone else at a bar, telling them the story of what happened to him. And he says, I tried and tried and tried again, but I was never able to find that Acme travel agency. It wasn't where it was before. And no matter what I did, I never was able to try it again. The story ends on a feeling of disappointment and loss that he had his one chance and he blew it. And it's kind of melancholy. Like I said, Jack Finney, we're going to talk about him a little bit more in a minute. One of my favorite authors. How about you, Steve? How did you feel about the story? I did not like the story. Well, good. For several reasons. One of them is I just hate the kind of story where a moment's decision and you lose a huge amount. Flip of the coin, you turn of the corner, you step out for a cigarette. You know, if you just hadn't done that one three-second action, then the rest of your life would be great. I hate those so much. Well, wow, that's, that's not very optimistic. I know it's supposed to give more grit to it. They do do that wraparound where he heard the story from a drunk in a bar, and by the end of the story, now he's a drunk in the bar telling other people yeah, the story. Yeah, that's the, the framing device. But the tone I also don't like. If John Cheever wrote a science fiction story for Colliers, this would be that story. Well, it's funny that you should mention that. This particular story was published in... I can't believe I'm saying this. It was published in Good Housekeeping magazine. I want to say something about that. They used to publish <laughs> they used to publish real fiction. My dad had a square foot of Texas published in Good Housekeeping. I assume they probably paid pretty good. Yeah, probably almost as good as Playboy. It had to be one of the top. That really surprised me. That was in March of 1955. He was not generally published in a lot of science fiction magazines. Very early on, he had a couple stories published in fantasy and science fiction. His style is very much in keeping with that magazine. Mostly, he got published in Collier's, but also the Saturday Evening Post and McCall's, which was another quote-unquote woman's magazine, but it was a very high-profile, big circulation magazine. So he had significant success publishing to very large circulation magazines, very popular magazines, just like Ray Bradbury had a number of stories published in the Saturday Evening Post. I wouldn't be surprised if he had been published in Collier's as well. He was in that vein of Ray Bradbury, the sort of science fiction writer who would have been much more palatable to the mainstream because he wrote stories that were very people-oriented, soft science fiction, without a lot of heavy science in it, and very entertaining premises. I'd like to just very quickly point out he was born in Milwaukee. Yay for the home team. He was also famous for one other particular work of fiction, Body Snatchers. That was adapted into the famous story Invasion of the Body Snatchers in the 1950s, which was also adapted a couple other times. We've already talked about that in a previous episode. He wrote Assault on a Queen, which was adapted into the Frank Sinatra heist movie of the same name. That was a heist movie where they're robbing a passenger liner. I think I remember seeing that at one point. I have a vague recollection of that movie. Other well-known stories, Five Against the House, Good Neighbor Sam, The Night People, all of which were adapted uh, either for TV or for movies. The Night People sounds familiar. Yeah, I don't have the details of the movie, but I believe that was adapted into a TV movie, I want to say. And then he wrote Time and Again, 
which is widely considered to be one of the great time travel novels ever written. Stephen King, among others, have pointed out that they feel that it is one of the great time travel stories. So he had a great deal of success during his career, wrote the sort of science fiction that I'm very fond of. But the aspect of this story that I want to take our tangent off of is the trope of the burnt-out middle-aged man. It's no surprise that this was a pretty popular trope in the 1950s, 1960s, where professional men, usually white-collar professional men, in the rat race, as they used to call it. His boss is on his back, his wife doesn't understand him, his kids are terrible, and life has just gotten to a point where he's asking himself, what's the point of it all? What have I done with my life? Why am I here? Very commonly in advertising for some reason. And it's funny you should mention that because we're going to take a look at The Twilight Zone because one of the most common stories of The Twilight Zone, and I would say it could be as much as half of all the stories that were done in the original Twilight Zone series, were stories about people who were either losers or they reached a critical point in their life where things weren't going well or they'd failed at something. Regret. Regret. There were stories of regret and loss, failed potential. All these stories that took off from that starting point And the two that we're going to look at here are Walking Distance and A Stop at Willoughby. Two very similar stories, and we're going to point out why it's no coincidence they were both very similar. They both featured two burnt-out middle-aged men, both of them in advertising. That is not a pure coincidence, and we'll get to that in a moment. But basically it follows that Twilight Zone trope of the failure the disappointed life, reaching that critical point, and then something magical happens that either saves the day or dooms them even further or makes them realize that, you know, I just need to get out and smell the roses. I once read an account of Rod Serling writing Twilight Zone episodes, and apparently when he was stuck, he liked to go out late at night and walk the streets of the suburb he lived in. And you can kind of see that it's 10 o'clock at night on a cool summer evening, and you're alone walking around the sidewalks in the dark. Really could engender stories like these. And the fact that he chose to make the protagonists of these two stories, men who worked in advertising, is no coincidence. Because Rod Serling gained his fame by writing teleplays for the Kraft Television Theater, and then most famously for Playhouse 90. Playhouse 90 was probably the premier drama program of the 1950s. For example, Requiem for a Heavyweight, which is he's most famous for, was done on Playhouse 90. So he was always fighting advertisers. He was trying to write socially topical stories. He was trying to write relevant dramas to the issues of the day, and they didn't like that. They wanted very safe, very bland fare. He had a lot of problem with the South. Yeah, he couldn't talk about anything touching on race because Southern TV stations would refuse to run the show. He had all kinds of problems throughout his career with advertisers before the Twilight Zone. He had a real antipathy. To me, it's not at all a coincidence that he chose to make his protagonists of these two episodes burned out advertising men. So the first one, Walking Distance, a 
burnt out advertising exec is driving through the country and he pulls into a gas station and says, I need you to check my oil and he's going to check the car over. And he's standing there talking to the guy in a gas station. He says, hey, isn't uh, isn't Homewood just a little ways down the road from here? That's where I grew up. And the guy at the gas station says, yeah, it's only about a mile down the road. So he decides while he's waiting for the guy to work on his car, he's going to walk down to Homewood, his old hometown. And wouldn't you know it, he winds up walking back in time to the era of his childhood, to 1934. And he runs into his past self. He runs into his parents, who are now dead, and has a crisis of faith and kind of has a big freak out on a merry-go-round. And his father comes and they have a conversation. And his father says, you know, you just need to be yourself or whatever. It's very well done. It's one of the best episodes of The Twilight Zone. First of all, it's starring Gig Young, who was a very good actor back in his prime. So this was a period of time before he became destroyed by alcoholism. He was one of the very best actors of the day. And he was really good in this particular episode. And he really carried the emotional punch of a man who came to realize that you can't go back and you can't change the past, but you can change the future. And that's the hopeful element. Yes, his father had that great speech talking to him, telling him this summer was your summer years ago and you can't have it again. Right. So there's a hopeful end. He goes back and he gets his car and he drives away, presumably heading off to a new and happier life. So that's a really good episode. It's one of the very best. Serling himself felt that was one of his favorite episodes, which I'm not surprised considering that I think both of these episodes were written by himself, about himself, reflecting some of the things he was feeling in his life at that point. Now, the other one is A Stop at Willoughby. And again, another ad man who really has a miserable life. He's got a horrible boss who's just badgering him and humiliating him and belittling him constantly. He goes home after a terrible day at work, and he's got a horrible wife who's just criticizing him for being a loser and half a man and all of this. So he rides the train home from New York every night to Connecticut, where he lives, and He falls asleep on the train, and at one point he wakes up, and he's in an old-fashioned train, and he looks out the window, and there's old-fashioned, again, another carousel, people walking around in old-time clothes, and there's a band playing in a band shell, and there's a kindly conductor who says, you stopped at Willoughby, sir, and he looks out the window, and he's not believing what he sees, and then he wakes up, and he's back on the train again in the present, and it kind of nags at him, and then it happens again. And he gets up this time, and he walks right up to the exit of the train, and he almost steps off the train. He hesitates for a minute, and then he wakes up again, and he misses his chance to get off at Willoughby. He tells himself, next time it happens, I'm going to get off the train. He has further horrible interludes with his horrible boss and his horrible wife. And again, he's on the train, deliberately puts himself to sleep this time, wakes up. He's in Willoughby. This time he gets up, walks off, gets off the train, and he's walking through the streets of Willoughby, and he sees a couple of young boys. They look like Huck Finn. They're carrying fishing poles. He goes, how's the fish biting today, kids? He says, maybe I'll join you tomorrow. You can tell he's really happy. He's really blissful. And then cut back to the president. He's laying dead at the side of the train. And the conductor's going, I don't know, one minute he's asleep, and the next minute he gets up, he jumps, and he jumps off the train. The kicker for the show is they say, well, there's nothing more we can do. We'll have to have an autopsy. And the ambulance guys put him inside the ambulance, and they close the door, and it says, Willoughby Funeral Home. 
Oh, I forgot that. Yeah, and that's the kicker. And did he have a smile on his face, or am I thinking of one of a hundred other episodes? No, I, I think he did have a smile okay. on his face. Yeah, that one of the characters commented on it. So that's that episode. You know, there was another one. There was an actor who lost himself in the fictional character. Was it a Western actor? No, it was like um, some very generic scene uh-huh. in an office when they yell "cut." He realizes he's on a set, but he's still the character, uh-huh. and he's freaking out. And he meets his wife, who's just a horrible, horrible person. His agent is pressuring him, and the network is saying he drinks too much and all kinds of problems. And in the end, he ends up, and I think this happened more than once on The Twilight Zone, the run, to run back to the thing. As they're disassembling the set, he has to get through the door, and he just makes it. That sounds very familiar. I'm sorry I missed that one because I would have included it if I would have found it. I'm sorry I hadn't thought of it earlier. While you were talking, I remembered that one. But like I said, that was like half of the episodes of The Twilight Zone was some person at a moment in crisis of their life when they failed or they're failing and things are falling apart around them and they are at this critical juncture and then something magical happens. So in this case, it's a pair of burned-out middle-aged men who one way or another find peace and happiness. And in the case of the stop at Willoughby, they find this sweet, sweet release of death. You know, yes. <laughs> Can I tell a completely unrelated story? Please I love do. This. Please do. Years ago, I was working at a place that had a computer lab, and it was a library that was open to the public. Or more importantly, they received federal funding for some of their budget, which means everything had to go according to the Americans with Disabilities Act measurements and heights and requirements. I discovered that the adjustable computer lab tables were like an inch low. They were so grateful. They told me that I was going to be the one to crawl under those tables and lift them all up an inch, like 30 of these fucking things. (laughs) Well, I had a helper. So we're in this computer lab, which is basically soundproof, and we're under the tables, and we're working away, and then we get up, And we look around, and the fire alarm lights are blinking, but there's no alarm going on. And we step out of the lab, and we look around. The entire place is empty. (laughs) That sounds like a Twilight Zone episode. Exactly. And I remember telling the story to a guy and saying, yeah, all we needed was the conductor saying, next stop, Willoughby. And he (laughs) went hysterical because that was his favorite all-time episode. (laughs) You can see where this is... A very personal sort of a story for Rod Serling and reflects probably some of the things that were going on in his life. Now, we're going to take a little further diversion here where we're going to point out how much a debt of gratitude the Twilight Zone owes to the type of fiction that Jack Finney wrote, that Richard Matheson wrote. By the way, Richard Matheson wrote 16 episodes of The Twilight Zone, so clearly he fit in there very well. And the sort of fiction that Ray Bradbury wrote. And there's a very interesting story about his connection to The Twilight Zone, which we're going to divert into here a little bit. And the funny thing is, in both episodes of The Stop at Willoughby and Walking Distance, there are references to Bradbury. Are there? Dr. Bradbury in Walking Distance, and then there's a, I think, a street named Bradbury Street in Stop at Willoughby. So that kind of gives it away. Yes, a little bit. So what happened was that a year before The Twilight Zone was on the air, Rod Serling was developing the idea for the show. 
and he met Ray Bradbury at a dinner or at a function of some kind and explained what it was he was trying to do. I'm going to give you a little quote here from Ray Bradbury, him recounting what he said and how he reacted to Rod Serling's idea. He said, come to the house with me right now and I'll give you books that'll help you. I gave him copies of books by Richard Matheson, Charles Beaumont, who, by the way, wrote numerous episodes of The Twilight Zone, John Collier, one of his stories was adapted by The Twilight Zone, and Roald Dahl. I said, now you've got a complete idea of what your show should be like. Buy some of these stories or hire the authors to work for you because you can't do the whole thing yourself. So that's his story of how he basically helped out Rod Serling by pointing him in the direction of the type of fiction that he should be trying to produce. Not unexpected from Bradbury, very poetic. Yes. And, you know, I think there was a certain amount of compatibility with Rod Serling's point of view, his style of writing, his vision with the type of soft science fiction that all of those writers that he mentioned were producing at that time. Like I said, Matheson and Beaumont wound up writing for the show. Collier, one of his stories, is adapted. I don't remember if they adapted any raw doll, but there were certainly some stories that could have been adapted, just like Jack Finney. I'm surprised they never adapted any Jack Finney stories because that would have been right up their alley, the type of stories that he wrote. But when it came to his stories, Ray Bradbury's stories, he wrote several scripts for Twilight Zone, and only one of them was produced. I Sing the Body Electric, which is about the uh, grandmother robot. The the family brings in a grandmother robot to look after the kids. And it was a very poetic story and a very poetic episode of The Twilight Zone. But apparently Bradbury thought it wasn't very good and they ruined it. And he parted ways bitterly from Serling after that show because he felt they kind of butchered the story. By the way, starring Penny from Lost in Space. Yes. Yeah, I think you're right. And Bill Mooney from Lost in Space was on multiple episodes. Oh, yes. Uh, including yeah. the famous one. Which he has all these powers. Yeah. So during this process where he was trying to write scripts for Twilight Zone and afterwards, Ray Bradbury frequently accused Rod Serling of plagiarism, that he was stealing his ideas, that he was stealing other science fiction writers' ideas, he had some specific examples, which I am not going to go into here. If I had to go on a hunch, I would say, A, it was probably true to the extent that anyone borrows from anyone else, and B, Bradbury was a little bit bitter. Well, yes, and one of the things that I'm learning as I'm doing this process of doing research on all these different figures from the golden age of science fiction is you come to realize that some people are unreliable narrators Oh yeah. when they're talking about their own life. Another example other than Ray Bradbury would be John W. Campbell. He made a lot of statements claiming credit for things that he, at best, maybe only had partial credit due to him. And Bradbury strikes me as being that kind of guy. He's somewhat of an unreliable narrator. And he said himself, at the beginning of the process, before the show got off the ground, he handed a big pile of books to Rod Serling to say, here, this is what you should be doing. And I guarantee you, he probably read all of these books and some of those ideas stuck in his mind unconsciously and emerged later in a different form, and he wasn't consciously plagiarizing. I think that's happened to both of us as well. Yeah, I've unconsciously plagiarized early in my career. It happens. 
But I think plagiarism is too strong a word. I think he had certain ideas and concepts that he used that other authors had used before. But maybe some of those ideas were ideas that you could probably go back and 20 years into the history of science fiction and find other authors before them that had written similar ideas. And we found this in our show. We found numerous examples of writers writing something that was reminiscent of something somebody else had written previously, or they worked an idea that somebody else had done previously. And they did a better job. And that's why they're known and the other one isn't. Exactly. And I'll give you a good example of why I think this is not conscious plagiarism. The ending of a stop at Willoughby where they close the door and it's Willoughby Funeral Home, that was stolen from a 1945 movie called Dead of Night. It was a collection of spooky short segments. It's a collection of stories with a linking mechanism that links the stories all together. In the case of Dead of Night, it's like a bunch of strangers get together at this house in a country and they're telling stories about what happened to them and It all turns out they're all dead or something like that. But there was an episode in that movie of a young woman who was being chased by a driver. She dies, and they find out he's a hearse driver. Oh, okay. So it wasn't an exact ripoff of that, but it was very, very similar, and the structure of it was very, very similar. I want to mention, I think it was called The Hitchhiker, which was a Twilight Zone episode. She keeps seeing the same hitchhiker in her mirror, which was earlier one, maybe even two radio productions in the 40s. There you go. So I'm sure that there was a lot of unconscious plagiarism on the part of Serling, and I don't buy it that he was consciously stealing from all of these different science fiction writers. But it's an interesting relationship that Ray Bradbury, the one writer of all the writers of that era whose style was most perfectly suited for The Twilight Zone, was largely a failure when he tried to write for them. Out of three stories that he worked on, only one of them was produced, and he felt like it was not a good production. I really wish we could know what changes were made to that script, how Bradbury presented it, and how it was changed into the story we see. The comments that I read about the two that didn't get produced were that he was writing things that were unfilmable, or they were too expensive. There was no way that they could produce it on a half-hour TV show budget the things that he wanted to present in the stories. And that was the main obstacle. That's the exact scenario of City on the Edge of Forever episode in Star Trek. Written by Harlan Ellison. Yes, who threatened to sue unless they removed his name from the episode. But then the episode won an award and suddenly it's all his. Well, yeah, there's the king of unreliable narrators right there, Harlan Ellison. You know, it's funny because two writers that were somewhat acolytes of Ray Bradbury, who followed in his success in Matheson and Beaumont, become two of the primary writers for that TV show. And Matheson wrote, and Beaumont too, but Matheson wrote some of the most famous episodes adapting his own stories. In many cases, Terror at 30,000 Feet with Shatner and Third Planet from the Sun. Very, very famous episodes of The Twilight Zone, skillfully written by Richard Matheson, who didn't really have a lot of previous TV writing experience. He just figured it out. And Ray Bradbury never was able to do that, really. And another thing Matheson wrote, which calls back to today's topic, he wrote Time After Time, which ends with just that one moment that ruins everything and Christopher Reeve loses everything. If it weren't for that one penny 
that he sees that breaks the his kind of story that you hate. Yes. <laughs> so you didn't like Time After Time. Well, I didn't like that ending, but I like Time After Time. Yeah, it's a great movie, yeah. I think. It's one of his better efforts. So as long as we're on the subject of The Twilight Zone, are there any other episodes that you feel are overlooked that you'd like to recommend? There is, and it's a funny episode, too, which is probably why people don't remember it. It was called Once Upon a Time, and it featured Buster Keaton. By that point, Buster Keaton's career had effectively ended, and he was earning a living writing bits for other people. Most notably, a lot of the more famous Marx Brothers bits were written by Buster Keaton. I didn't know that. The shipboard episode where you end up with all the people in the same room and they they spill out eventually, he did that. Okay. And this particular episode is he is a janitor in a science laboratory in like 1888 or so, and they invent a time uh, helmet. I, I think I remember that one. Yes. yes. And then he shows up in 1954. I think one of the things that makes the episode really effective the time in 1888 is done silently with oh. old-timey oh, like music. Like, okay. And then once he gets to the future, boom, you get trash yes, noises. Yes, now I remember that. Yep, yep. The one I would choose, now in the fourth season of The Twilight Zone, the show almost got canceled. And in order to save the show, Serling agreed to expand it to an hour. So the episodes in the fourth season are all an hour long. And there's one in the fourth season that's always been a favorite of mine. It's called, I believe, The 30 Fathom Grave. And it's about a sailor during World War II who's on a destroyer. And he keeps hearing this knocking coming from below the water, like somebody's pounding on the bottom of the ship with a hammer. And it turns out he's a survivor of a ship that sank and all his crewmates died and he's the only survivor. It's basically a haunting where he's being haunted by his dead crewmates. It's not a particularly complex and kind of a predictable ending to the story, but the execution of it is really good. It's creepy. It's tense. The actor who plays the character in question is perfectly cast because he's like a real sweaty, anxious guy. He's just perfect in the role. That's always been a favorite of mine because it was one of the more creepy episodes of The Twilight Zone. That's another episode I really liked. All right. Well, that's it for episode 32. Please tune in next week for another journey into the golden age of science fiction. I'm Patrick Baird. I'm Steve Reitze. Keep watching the sky. That's all for today. Pat and I thank you for listening and invite you to come back for the next episode of Unknown Orbits. Two guys from Milwaukee. 